couple weeks ago, we were talking about the way we walk. And uh, I want to get back to that in the book of Ephesians, in beginning with chapter 4, uh, the Apostle Paul writes there, and in about five different places, he mentions the way we walk. And, um, you know, if you think about walking a certain way, you may think of the idea of an imitation, an imitation. And um, <laughs> I, I'm sorry, my mind, I'm from Tennessee. And so sometimes my mind goes in certain directions. And, and reading this verse, Ephesians 5 verse 1, that says, therefore, be imitators of God. It makes me want to say, what kind of a tater are you? Um, because in Tennessee, they don't eat potatoes. They eat taters. Um, so if, you, if you've never heard it, if you've never heard a person from the deep south... Um, then you just, for one thing, you've really missed out. It's, it's, it's wonderful to hear them talk. It's wonderful, it's wonderful to hear them try to learn Spanish. I, I, I've never taken Spanish, but um, some of these kids that I used to grow up around in Tennessee, uh, to hear them trying to learn Spanish and to speak Spanish with a very deep south southern accent is hilarious. It's wonderful to hear. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, this just makes me want to say, what kind of a tater are you? You know, there are commentators, and I suppose that's me. I'm a commentator. Um, nothing special. But this says we are to be imitators. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Therefore, be imitators. I believe that the King James Version says to be followers of God. And the word that the King James Version translates as follower is literally the word to imitate, to be an imitator. You know, they say that imitation is a sincere form of flattery, that who you admire and who you want to be like that you that you imitate. I'm a little bit embarrassed to say this, but when I was a very young boy in the early 80s, probably 1982, somewhere around there, my dad had a mint green polyester leisure suit. And, and when, I was, when I was about three or four years old, I had a suit that was almost exactly like his. It was the same exact color, and I had a little white shirt and a dark green tie to wear just like his that matched. And if I 
knew that he was wearing his mint green polyester leisure suit, I wanted to wear mine too. I, I wanted to match my dad. I looked up to him. I wanted to be like him. And so I would try to imitate him. My dad, as I remember, he just about always had some kind of a project to be working on. And uh, he's somewhat of a mechanic and a, and a tinkerer. And so he would always be in the garage or in the shop working on something. And I, I just, I wanted to be right there where he was. As a young boy, probably a little older than three or four, probably more like seven or eight, um, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't admit this either, but uh, every once in a while I would get to sit in the, in the middle of the front seat and my dad would let me drive the car which meant I could put my hand on the steering wheel. And I always wanted to take your, get your hands off. Let me, I'm going to drive. And, of course, he would keep his hands very close and make sure that we were safe. But I wanted to be like him, and so I imitated him. This passage of Scripture says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us. So an imitation, an imitation, uh, to, to take note of what someone does and how they do it, and then try to pattern yourself, your, your life, your behavior, after this other person's life and behavior. So you follow an example you follow an example. You look both at what's not there as well as what is there. At what's not there as well as what is there. Let me, let me pause for just a moment and explain this a little bit further. Um, if you've noticed this verse, Ephesians 5 verse 1, it begins with a very important word. The first word is, Somebody tell me. Therefore, and when you see the word therefore, what should you do? You should pause for a moment and ask yourself, what is it therefore? And so it points us back to a few verses preceding. And, and uh, at the end of Ephesians chapter 4, we read these words. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God. So again, we follow an example and take note of what's not there as well as what is there. Notice again, verse 31 of Ephesians 4, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. You see, these are all things that were not in the character and the behavior and the attitude of Jesus Christ. 
When Jesus interacted with people, it was always without these character traits, these, these attitudes. There was no bitterness in him, no wrath. In fact, as I think about the life of Jesus and his interaction with people, it's interesting to me that Jesus was able to look at people as if they had done nothing offensive to him and was able to interact with them on that basis. You know, Stephen did this when he became the first martyr uh, of the early Christian church. As he was looking to heaven and the stones were, uh, were smashing him about the, the face and the body, and he was about to give up his life, he prayed, Father, do not lay this sin to their charge. In other words, he did not look upon those who were taking his life with any malice or any bitterness or wrath or anger or clamor. Jesus also was able to look at people as if what was not in them was already in them. I don't know how well you're following me, but let me try to say that again. Jesus was able to look at people, first of all, as if they had done nothing offensive against him. He treated people in a way that was loving and kind, as if they'd never done anything wrong. He was also able to look at people as if what was not in them was already in them. And I believe this is the way God calls us to love others. It's not something that we can work up or, or make ourselves do. And something, and I don't know, maybe this will help you understand a little bit more what I'm trying to say. One of the things that I've started praying for lately that, that I'm learning is it's a whole lot easier not to get annoyed and irritated in the first place than it is to have to try to be forgiving later. Are you with me? That's, that's, what I'm, that's what I'm saying when I say Jesus looked at people and treated them as if they had done nothing wrong to him. And I believe God calls us to interact with one another in spite of the hurts, in spite of the, the, uh, uh, the irritations and the annoyances and with God's help. I'm not saying that in our humanity this is something that we ought to be able to do just on our own. I don't believe that for a minute. But what I'm saying is that by walking with the Lord and by living in relationship with Jesus, that God's spirit is able to give us an infusion of divine love so that those people that do speak against us or those people that, that uh, uh, annoy or irritate us or even those people that may slander us, we're able to treat them as if they had done nothing to offend. We're following an example. We're following the example of Jesus Christ, the one who loved us and gave himself for us. 
we are told that we are to do this like children. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. This, by the way, is children at their best, not children at their worst. That's that idea of the child that you know cannot do what their grown-up parent can do or their grown-up hero can do or what have you, but yet they go ahead and try anyway to do their best and imitate that one that they so long to be like. Friends, we may fall short in our efforts at times to be like Jesus, to love like Jesus, but we continue walking in love as God helps us and God enables us, remembering that we are like children and we are imitating like children. Who we are imitating is Christ, our example. Christ, our example. He shows us this example and it says that we walk in love as Christ loved us. Now, the, the grammar of that command, and it is a command, it's an imperative, and it's also a present tense imperative, which literally means to keep on walking in love. In other words, it's not something that we do in stops and starts. It's not something that we do intermittently or just as we feel like it. Oh, God, help me. I, uh, I hope I don't bother or trouble you too much, but I, I find at times I find myself struggling so much with, with moodiness and an inconsistent temperament and bad days affecting the way I conduct myself. Now, God help me, I try to be faithful as the Holy Spirit convicts and to go back and to use my reverse gear and, and say I'm sorry when I need to and, and would you please forgive me for that attitude or for that word spoken in haste. But oh, I want to keep on walking to walk continually in love as Christ loved us. To walk as Christ. How did Christ love us? Well, he loved us sacrificially. He gave himself for us. It was for our benefit. You know, a lot of what passes for love these days is really has nothing to do with love. There's a whole lot that has to do with lust, that is simply desire. And, and by the way, I, I want you to understand when I talk about lust, it, it could be something uh, sexual in orientation, but it doesn't have to be. In the Bible, when we read about lust, it simply is any strong desire. Any strong physical desire that tries to dominate our, our lives and our behavior. And I'm afraid we see much more of lust than we see of real love. Because lust wants to consume itself on itself. It's 
what I want is something for me, something for me to consume. It's like when people say they love chocolate cake. They don't really love chocolate cake. I, I mean, if you could imagine what that would look like, someone just taking care of and preserving chocolate cake. No, that you, you don't love it. You just want to eat it. You just want to consume it. Love has to do not with self, but with the object of love. And you see this most clearly, I think, in, in the normal, well-adjusted parent with their newborn little baby. That parent loves that little one, whether it be that mom or that dad, to the point that they're willing to, to sacrifice sleep, they're willing to, to be uncomfortable. My wife has learned how to eat and still enjoy cold food that ought to be hot because she loves her family. She loves her family. I can't stand cold food that ought to be hot. But my wife has learned how to do it, and it doesn't bother her, because at our house, sometimes it takes a while to get everybody to the table, and she loves me. And one of the ways she shows that is she gets my plate last, or lets me get my plate last, so that it's hot when I eat it. What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that love is, it doesn't consume itself. It's not interested in just satisfying self. You know, if you, if you only talk to the one that you love just when you want something from them, that's not love. But love is interested in the good, the benefit, the welfare of the object of that love. And that's what this is talking about. Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. He gave himself as an offering, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Now these two may sound synonymous, but they are not. They're two different words, clearly different words that are used here, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. The offering refers to something that is brought and presented. In the Old Testament context, you can uh, context uh, you can read about it in the first few chapters of the book of Leviticus. It might be a meal offering, which would have been something like flour, something like that. It could be oil, an offering of oil, or it might be a drink offering, which would be wine that would be poured out before the Lord. And it had an intention, a purpose. It was to create this sweet-smelling savor in God's nostrils that he, would in, that he would receive, he would enjoy and accept the worship of the people. 
But there was also the sacrifice. There was the fragrant offering, and then there was the sacrifice. The word that is interpreted here as sacrifice literally means to slay or kill. So it's a very direct reference to the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament when, uh, when a, a lamb or a goat or something would be brought and that animal's life uh, would be taken from it, its blood would be spilt and then sprinkled on the altar. And it was a very clear uh, uh, mental image, a picture for the people to help them understand the price, the cost of their sin and their rejection of God. And so Paul is saying here, this is what Jesus has done for you. He gave himself up for you, both as a fragrant offering and as a sacrifice to God. There is a beautiful bookend to verse 1 of Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, verse 1 that we read, 1 and 2, Be imitators of God as beloved children, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The other end of this we find a little bit later on in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 and 26, 27, that speaks about how Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. You see, friends, when we walk in love, when we learn to walk in love, it means that we are becoming beautiful as God intends for us to be. We are, we are fulfilling the price that he paid to purchase in us the beauty, the beauty of Jesus Christ. If you wanted to give Jesus a present, what would you give him? Have you ever wondered about what to give the person who has everything? You know, everybody at some point, you have, you have that person on your Christmas shopping list or your person that you have to buy a birthday for or buy a birthday gift for, and you say, what do you, what do you give to someone who doesn't need anything? What do you give to the one who owns the cattle on the thousand, on a thousand hills and all the gold under the hills? What do you give to the one who created the world? Well, a good way to solve that problem is to ask, what does Jesus want? And Jesus wants the same thing that every bridegroom wants. He wants a beautiful bride. And this verse says that Jesus gave himself for the church, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself. One of my favorite stories is a story that probably most of you have heard. 
and I'm going to close with this, but it is the story of the eight-cow wife. This story appeared a number of years ago, I believe, in the Reader's Digest or the Ladies' Home Journal or something to that, something of that nature. And the author tells about visiting on, I, I'm not sure whether they were Caribbean islands or South Pacific, maybe South Pacific islands, that sounds about right. And she said that she was advised there, get Johnny Lingo to help you find what you want, and then let him do the bargaining. She said as she sat on the veranda of the guest house where she was staying, she was wondering whether to visit a nearby island called Nirabandi. And she was told, Johnny Lingo will earn his commission four times over. He knows how to make a deal. And when the name Johnny Lingo was mentioned, a nearby little boy began to laugh out loud at the mention of the name of Johnny Lingo. And the boy's father said, be quiet. And the laughter grew silent. And the father continued saying, Johnny Lingo is the sharpest trader in this part of the Pacific. Again, the simple statement made by the boy's father caused the little boy to choke with laughter and almost roll off the steps. And smiles broadened the faces of the people passing by. And she said, what goes on here? Everybody mentions to me the name of Johnny Lingo and tells me I should get in touch with him. But then they break up laughing. She said, is this some kind of a trick, like a wild goose chase, like sending someone for a left-handed wrench? Shinken, the host of the home where she was staying, said, no, it's not a trick. Johnny Lingo is the sharpest trader in this part of the Pacific. But he said only one thing about Johnny Lingo. Five months ago at festival time, Johnny came to Kiniwata and found himself a wife. And he paid her father eight cows. He spoke the last words with great solemnity. And the author said, I knew enough about island customs to be thoroughly impressed. Two or three cows would buy a fair to middling wife. Four or five, a very highly satisfactory wife. Eight cows was simply unheard of to pay for a wife. And she said, this woman must have beauty that takes your breath away. And my host said, that's why the people laugh about Johnny Lingo. Because you see, it would be kindness to call his bride plain. She was little and skinny with no particular endowments of beauty. She walked with her shoulders hunched and her head ducked as if she was trying to always hide behind herself. Her cheeks had no color and her eyes never opened beyond a slit. Her hair was a tangled mop half over her face and she was scared of her own shadow, frightened by her own voice. She was afraid to laugh in public. She never played around with any of the other girls, and so how could she ever hope to attract a boy to marry her? But she attracted Johnny Lingo? And this is the story 
that the host told the visitor. All the way to the council tent, the cousins were urging Sam, the father of Sarita, to try for a good settlement. And they said, you should ask for three cows and then hold out for two until you're sure that he'll give at least one to buy Sarita as his wife. But Sam was in such a stew about this situation that he was afraid there'd be some slip up and uh, that no chance then for Sarita, his daughter, ever to get married. So while they waited, they resigned themselves simply to accepting one cow and thought instead of their luck in getting such a good husband for Sarita and Johnny Lingo. Then Johnny came into the tent and without waiting for a word from any of them, walked up straight to Sam Carew, grasped his hand and said, Father of Sarita, I offer eight cows for your daughter. And he delivered the cows. As soon as it was over, Johnny took Sarita to another island for a week of honeymoon. And then they went home to Narabundi and we haven't seen them since. Because except at festival time, there's not much travel between the individual islands. Well, the lady that heard the story was so interested that she decided she had to investigate and find out for herself. So the next day, she said, I reached the island where Johnny Lingo lived. And when I met the slim and serious man, he welcomed me to his home with a grace that made me feel like the owner rather than just a guest. I was glad that from his own people, he had at least respect unmingled with mockery. And I told him that his people, what his people had told about him. And Johnny Lingo said, they speak much of me on my home island. What do they say? She said, well, they say that you are a sharp trader. And they also say that the marriage settlement you made for your wife was eight cows. I paused and then went on, coming as close to a direct question as I could. They wonder why you gave eight cows. His eyes lighted with pleasure. They say that, do they? He seemed not to have noticed the question. Everyone in Kiniwata knows about the eight cows, yes? I nodded. And in Narabundi, everyone knows it too. And his chest expanded with satisfaction. Always and forever, when they speak of marriage settlements, it will be remembered that Johnny Lingo paid eight cows for Sarita. The lady, the guest, was disappointed. So that's the answer, I thought, with disappointment. All this mystery and wonder and the explanations only for vanity, simply for his own pride. It's not, as, it's not enough for his ego to be known as the smartest, the strongest, the quickest. He had to make himself famous for his way of buying a wife. I was tempted to deflate him by reporting that in Kiniwata he was laughed at for a fool. But as we spoke, a woman entered the adjoining room and placed a bowl of blossoms on the dining table. She stood still a moment to smile with sweet gravity at the young man beside me. Then she went swiftly out again. She was the most beautiful woman I have ever seen. This girl had an ethereal loveliness 
the dew-fresh flowers with which she'd pinned back her lustrous black hair accented the glow of her cheeks, the lift of her shoulders, the tilt of her chin, the sparkle of her eyes all spelled a pride to which no one could deny her the right. And as she turned to leave, she moved with grace that made her look like a queen. When she was out of sight, I turned back to Johnny Lingo and found him looking at me with eyes that reflected the pride of the young lady. You admire her, he murmured. She's glorious, I said, but who is she? I couldn't help but think if she was a servant, how difficult it must be for poor homely Sarita, having to daily be in the presence of such a beautiful woman, and what a temptation for Johnny Lingo, but Johnny Lingo said, she is my wife. I stared at him blankly. Was this some custom I had not heard about? Do they practice polygamy here? He, for his eight cows, bought both Sarita and this other beautiful woman. Before I could form a question, he spoke again. This is the only one, he said, the only Sarita. His way of saying the words gave them a special significance. Perhaps you wish to say she does not look the way they say she looked in Kiniwata? She doesn't, I said. The impact of the girl's appearance made me forget my tact. I heard she was homely. They all make fun of you because you let yourself be cheated by Sam Carew. You think he cheated me? Johnny Lingo asked. You think eight cows were too many? A slow smile slid over his lips as I shook my head. She can see her father and her friends again, and they can see her. Do you think anyone will make fun of us then? Much has happened to change her. Much in particular happened the day she went away. You mean she married you? I asked Johnny Lingo. That, yes, but most of all, I mean the arrangements for the marriage. Do you ever think... Johnny Lingo asked, what it does to a woman when she knows that the price her husband has paid is the lowest price for which she can be bought? And then later, when all the women talk, as women do, they boast of what their husbands paid for them. One says four cows, another maybe six. How does she feel, the woman who was sold for one or two? Johnny Lingo said, this could not happen to my Sarita. So I asked, then you paid that unprecedented number of cows just to make your wife happy? Happy? He seemed to turn the word over on his tongue as if to test its meaning. I wanted Sarita to be happy, yes, but I wanted more than that. You say she's different from the way they remember her in Kiniwata. This is true. Many things can change a woman, things that happen inside, things that happen outside. But the thing that matters most is what she thinks about herself. In Kiniwata, Sarita believed she was worth nothing. Now she knows that she is worth more than any other woman on the islands. Johnny Lingo said, I wanted to marry Sarita. I loved her and no other woman but I wanted an eight-cow wife. Christ loved the church. That's me, and that's you. 
and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, a glorious church, a beautiful church without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Therefore, friends, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us. Amen. Let's